Center and Mr. Percy, uh, Rudy Rucker, a friend for many, many years. Uh, it's great to be here talking to a group that's interested in the fourth dimension because I just found out that this book, Geometry, Relativity, and the Fourth Dimension, has sold over 100,000 copies, which is really good. My copy is autographed, and in fact, it was the way we met because you sent it to me in the mail, and it says, My mom said I should send you a copy of this book. She told that you do the fourth dimension. So I got it. Thanks for thanking it to your mom. Mom was right. Mom was right, right. Uh, and uh, we know each other for a long time. <coughs> couple of high points. One was in 1984. That's a big year for, for literature. Why is that? Flatland. It's the 100th anniversary of Flatland. You're supposed to say because of the book 1984. <laughs> yes, I know. But, it is. <laughs> but uh, Flatland was published in 1884, as we all know. Uh, thanks to the authoritative edition that came out two years ago. And Rudy was there because his new book, The Fourth Dimension, was just coming out. Yes. And also with Key Dudney. And I have a wonderful picture of Rudy and Alexander Key Dudney, whose other book, uh, The Planet Earth, is just coming out. When I go home next week, I'll bring copies of The Planet Earth back read that. And The Fourth Dimension, Rudy's book, is coming out again in paperback. So everybody will have a chance to see that too. I'll get some copies of that back. Enough said. Rudolf Rucker. Well, thanks, Tom. Uh, yes, very nice. I forgot to say that you're a, you've been a professor at Stanford State College for many years. Now, sorry. It's very nice to be here at uh, University of San Francisco and to be meeting with Tom Banshoff's fourth dimension class. Uh, as Tom said, I've known him for quite a long time. And uh, yeah, Tom was known early on. He was one of the first people to be using computers to do mathem <coughs> mathematical visualization. And he had one famous visualization of some Tauruses doing something in the fourth dimension. Turning inside out. Turning inside out in the fourth dimension. And that was on the cover of the Scientific American. And I think the same picture was later on your book that came out from Freeman, the yeah. publishers of Scientific American. And that, at that time, I mean, the computer Tom was using was about half the size of this room. And uh, it was very hard to do these things. That now you can do on your, your laptop or even your iPad, probably. Um, so my interest in the fourth dimension uh, was sparked by the book Tom mentioned, Flatland. And uh, I first started reading that book in high school around 19, oh, around 1962, let's say. So that would be 50 years ago. And uh, <laughs> the point of Flatland is that we're talking about this two-dimensional person or this two-dimensional character. And uh, he's called A-square. And he's trying to visualize the third dimension. And originally, when I first read the book, I didn't, I didn't fully get what it was about. And the idea was, we're three-dimensional creatures, and we have trouble understanding the fourth dimension. 
So it's a, it's a sort of strict analogy. Four is to three as three is to two. So whenever I'm trying to imagine something four-dimensional, I can't do it. Then I say, well, what would a square do? How would a square try to imagine the three-dimensional analog of this? And uh, so I've drawn a lot of pictures of a square over the years. Uh, I started drawing them in, as Tom mentioned, my first book, Geometry, Relativity, and the Fourth Dimension. And that grew out of notes I would print up for my students. I was teaching a course on foundations of geometry at a college in upstate New York. And then later, um, I wrote a longer, more popular book called The Fourth Dimension, and I drew a lot of pictures of A-square in there. And uh, there's some movies of Flatland, and I was talking to Tom about this before class. They don't fully always get it right. The thing is, you wouldn't want to draw A-square's eye as being inside his square, because that would be like saying that your eye is actually inside your head. Descartes used to, was intrigued, the philosopher Descartes was intrigued by the pineal gland. It's this little thing, maybe the size of your thumb, and it's in between your two brain halves, it's in the middle of your brain. And sometimes mystics or spiritualists might say, well, maybe that's your third eye, and you see into higher space. So if I was putting A square's eye in the middle of his head, he would be, it wouldn't be seeing in flatland. So he just sees in his own plane, and so we kind of need to put his eye out on the edge of his head. And uh, if you think about it, his retina, his retina would be a one-dimensional line segment. Because our retina is this two-dimensional disk, and the images, we're looking at a 3D world, but the images we see, they're basically akin to photographs. They're, uh, three, they're flattened onto the two-dimensional plane of our retina. And so that's a fact I'll come back to later. Another thing about A-square, we're looking down at him from above, and if we were cruel people, we could go and push on his heart and basically kill him just by pinching at his heart. And so that's this thing that a four-dimensional being could do to you. They could reach into your body without breaking your skin. That's one of the, the odd things about higher dimensions. I can come into A-square's body without breaking his skin. In the Philippines, there's some people who... Uh, make a living supposedly doing that. They call it psychic surgery. So the way it works, the psychic surgeon will conceal a chicken liver in his hand. And so then you have a tumor, you know, you're dying of cancer, so he'll go and he'll just push his hand against your stomach and, you know, he'll yell some weird stuff, you know, and then he'll say, all right, I just reached inside your body. I don't know if they talk about fourth dimension or not. He might say, I dissolved into the psychic level, or somehow I reached into your body without breaking your skin, and I pulled out your tumor, bam, here it is, and then he'll show you the chicken liver that was hidden in his hand. And then you fry that, and you eat it, and then you get well. It's not necessarily true that you fry it and eat it, but maybe you do. Okay. So uh, there's all sorts of things people can use the fourth dimension for. And over the years, people who have talked about the fourth dimension have also been, often been sort of marginal, marginal scam artists. Like spiritualists, uh, they would often say that they were using the fourth dimension. If you want to talk about ghosts, where do the ghosts live? I mean, we don't see them around most of the time. 
I mean, now and then you'll see a ghost, but most of the time you don't see them. Where are they hanging out when we're not seeing them? One convenient answer is they're in the fourth dimension. They're in this, this plane other than our Earth. And the whole idea of heaven and hell, you can even work out a thing where you would say, well, if we imagine flatland being this endless plane where these flat people live in, and uh, that would divide space into two halves, the upper half and the lower half. So you might say, well, maybe the upper half is heaven and the lower half is hell. That was a theme I worked out. One thing I haven't yet mentioned, and I don't think Tom mentioned, is uh, my real career is that I'm a science fiction author. Okay? I got a PhD in math, and when I moved to California, I became a computer science professor. But for me, academia was always more in the way of a day job. My main sort of deep self-expression was always in writing science fiction. So I've published 20 science fiction novels. Uh, and one of those books is called Spaceland. And it's sort of an analogy to Flatland. And in Flatland, a square gets pulled into the higher dimension by a sphere. And in Spaceland, I have... I thought sometimes it's a good idea to have your main character be not too bright. Because then the readers, it's easy to identify with them. You know, you don't feel like the main character is talking down to you. So his main character is a middle manager in a computer business. And he's called Joe Cube. And then he, he goes up into hyperspace. And there's these, these creatures that live above Earth. And things, we can't call it up and down, really. Up and down aren't the right words. Because up in, in Flatland, you've got east, west, north, south, or maybe left and right. But uh, they don't really have up and down, because those are the third dimensional directions. So you need some new names for the fourth dimensional directions. And Charles Howard Hinton called them kata and ana. Those are Greek words. And they're sort of, they're like kind of plus and minus, or, or good and bad, kata and ana. But uh, in my novel Spaceland, I thought, let's get some livelier names. So I called them klup and drawn. Clup with a K, so you can go clup or drawn. So the cluppers, they sort of present themselves as being good, heavenly people. And the drawners, they're red and they look perhaps like devils. But then, as often happens, it turns out the so called angels are the bad guys and the so called devils are the good guys. Anyway, back to Flatland. Uh, I've got a slide here that shows some pictures of Flatlanders. These pictures, by the way, were drawn by a friend of mine called David Povolitis. Uh, he lives in Sonoma. And uh, one thing about Flatland that's kind of interesting is that the, uh, generally speaking, the more sides you have, the higher your social status is. And so we have A square there, and his father behind him, he was a triangle. A square's son is a pentagon. His grandson is a hexagon. And if you get enough sides, then you can forbid people to touch you and you can say that you're a circle. And these are the high priests of the Flatland Society. And then lower down the scale, we have uh, very pointy triangles. These are the soldiers and police. And they're especially good at, at stabbing people. Now, the, the low, <laughs> at the bottom of the, the status scale in Flatland Society are these line segments. Well, guess who they are? The women, yeah. Now, uh, Sometimes, I'm sure Tom, it's probably he's mentioned this, is that there's even a preface to Flatland where A-square says, people accuse me of being a woman hater. 
And people sometimes would say, well, you know, he was a sexist, obviously, if he made the women be these, these mere line segments. But what you want to keep in mind is Flatland, it's, there's two things it was doing. It was a, kind of an intellectual exercise, but it was also a social satire. Because he was doing that deliberately, because in the society he was in, the women, Victorian society, women were fairly oppressed. Now he himself, it's worth knowing, he was one of the first people... He's, his daughter, I believe, was the first person to graduate from, was it Cambridge or Oxford? Uh, Cambridge. Cambridge. And uh, so he encouraged his daughter, you know, far from pushing her down, encouraged her to do something that, that women were not doing at all at that time. There's also, there's a funny passage in Flatland where he talks about it being dangerous if you're in a closed room with a woman to, to make her angry because she might start stabbing with that sharp end. And he said, sometimes in their fits of passion, they know no measure. Sometimes after annihilating her family, a woman will be found sweeping up the scraps of their remains, and she will wonder what has become of her family. <laughs> Wait, that slide, uh, your friend who drew the picture has an eyeball inside as opposed to be on the outside for the, the sphere, for example. Well, the, at least there's a cornea that's out there. There's a cornea out there, right? Yeah. So what, what the black part actually is, it's, it's sort of ambiguous, really, isn't it? I guess that would be the lens. But it probably should always be on the edge. OK. By the way, uh, while I'm talking, if you have any questions, feel free to interrupt me. And then later, we'll have a, a longer discussion section. Now, usually it's assumed that the flatlanders just slide around on a flat plane. But you could also vary it, and you could say they have a planet, and they move around on the surface of the planet. I mean, that's sort of our position. We don't float around in three-dimensional space. That's one of the reasons that scuba diving is appealing to people, because that's the one time that you're moving around at will in three-dimensional space. Uh, skydiving a little bit, but that's not really, you're not really moving around at will, you're falling down. And of course, if you're an astronaut, then you're floating around in space. But that's the one way on Earth that we have three-dimensional full freedom is scuba, which is something I love to do, but I'm now I'm getting so old, I'm not sure I could do it anymore without my brain bursting. Uh, having a little trouble getting these in good focus. Uh, I guess that's as good as it's going to get. I should really scan these and get them into my computer. Uh, I think the last time I used these slides might have been at 1984. Uh, anyway, uh, the thing I was getting at, it, Flatlanders, the thing is we're limited to the surface of the Earth. That's sort of a, a drag in that it's two-dimensional. And if you put the poor flatlanders on the surface of a planet, well, their planet's going to be a two-dimensional disk. And so they've just got this one-dimensional line to walk around the edge of the world. And so when they run into each other, they have to climb over each other. But uh, in, in, in any case, it's sort of, it's just fun to think about it. There, if we have, you'll notice on one edge, there's a, there's a hole in the ground. So that's sort of like a cave where this, this circle lives, this cruel high priest. And to protect himself, he's got one of those sharp isosceles triangle soldiers acting as a, a door. Now, uh, 
Just one minor point about a square. I don't know if Tom got around to mentioning this. Did you mention this? This is the issue of uh, when we eat something, well, we have a tube that runs through our body. It goes from our mouth to our excretion area. And so we could have, if you did that with a square, if you ran a tube through his body, there would be a problem, which would be what? How would it come out? Well, that would be easy enough, but... He'd be two separate parts. He'd be two separate parts, yeah. So his top would move off and his bottom would, would stay there. So that's... Uh, and that's... People who like to think about these things, mathematicians, <laughs> recreational and math people, we worried about it for a while, and then we worked out the idea of having sort of a zipper in this digestive tract. So you could have this sort of passing along the bolus of food. But this is an unsavory topic, so let's move on. Uh, another thing about uh, flatland that's worth thinking about, and again, I don't know if Tom mentioned this or not, it's the whole issue of mirror symmetry. Uh, the thing is, inherently, a two-dimensional object inherently isn't really left-handed or right-handed. If I draw on a sheet of paper an outline of my hand, and suppose that <coughs> the ink soaks through, now look at that piece of paper. If I look at the paper from this side, it's a right hand. If I look at the paper from this side, it's a left hand. The whole idea of handedness, it's, it's a funny thing. It, it's sort of a relative thing in a given space. Uh, and if you stand outside the space, if you look at the space from one side, it's one-handed, and the other, it's other. Now, one of the things that's interesting about higher space is you can flip an object over and change its handedness. So this is what I'm getting at in, in this drawing here. We see a square, and normally his eye is on his, what you would call the northeast corner, and his mouth is on the east edge. And if he rotates over, then his eye is on the northwest corner, and his mouth is on the left edge, and you can't, you can't turn one of those into the other by moving him around in the plane. His mirror image is essentially different from him. Now, there's sort of a, a head trip we can do this, do with this, that I want to get to. Sure. That's true. Uh, and it, we think of it as a flip exactly this way. You pick it up and turn yeah. the slide over and put it on the other side. Whereas the animator said that he did it simply for animation reasons. Yes. It's better to have people look That's at right. it and upside down. Uh, he said that really what happens is that it spins, and each flatlander has two uh, mouths, uh -huh. one above the eye and one below the eye. And when you spin, it's only polite to talk from your lower mouth. I see. So it, it doesn't really work. Uh -huh. Because it doesn't work for our space triangles. Even that, that wouldn't work, uh, no. These, these are problems that people have thought about it a lot. I was in a movie, and, uh, and that's one of the issues we did talk about. Uh-huh. Or, yeah, or his eye, I suppose, could, could move around inside his body. 
He could be sort of amoeba like, you know. <laughs> Just a sort of an amusing. Okay, now let's jack this up to 3D and talk about turning into your own 3D image. So just to get an image of it, I'm going to draw a, a sort of cube guy, and we'll make him so he's not symmetric. So one of, on one side of his face, he has a triangular eye. On the other side, he has a circular eye. The mouth on what we would call his right side, it curves up. That's the happy side. The mouth on his left side curves down. So if he looks in a mirror, you know, he's going to have the... The happy mouth is on the right, and the mirror image, the happy mouth, is on the left. Now, uh, there's an interesting thing. Now, this is sort of a new element that I haven't mentioned yet. There's this thing called a Necker cube. And when you draw a, a cube just in outline, and everybody's seen this illusion many times, if you draw a cube in outline, this drawing, it's an ambiguous figure in that I can either view this face as being the front or I can view this face as the front. So it can either look like a cube that's sort of slanting down or a cube that's sort of slanting up. And if you stare at it, particularly if you kind of stare in this area, it will sort of spontaneously reverse itself. You'll see it one way then you'll see it the other. Can, can everybody see it reversing? Now, uh, there's actually lots of things. You Sometimes you'll see something out in the real world that'll reverse like that. Like if you see a TV antenna, an old school TV antenna silhouetted against the sky, you can sort of make it flip. If, if you're, you know, have that bent of mind, if you focus on it, you can see it, it change. Also, the other day I was in a a diner, and they had some machine that, you know, one of those machines where there's these rotating arm over a tank of incredibly foul yellow juice that you can buy for $3.99, a large glass of it. And then I realized I could flip that thing. And when you have something that's rotating and it's a Necker cube, if you flip its orientation, it then seems to be rotating in the opposite direction. They had some displays about this in the Exploratorium. And that's a little hard to, I can't really dramatize that for you, but if you ever see a rotating cube like that, you notice that if you do a Necker reversal on it, instead of rotating to the left, it's rotating to the right. That illusion has a name. It's something like Pulver, something, or Pulfrich. I don't exactly remember the name of it. But uh, now, another point that, I'm, that I want to get to here is when you're looking at this and it's doing that rotation, that flip, what you're seeing, in a sense, is it rotating in the fourth dimension. Now, it's, if you thought of this as being abrupt, but it's just happening smoothly, it's actually turning over in the fourth dimension. And that's one place that you see the fourth dimension in daily life. So we can look here, just bringing this out again. Here's the, this cube guy, and if we draw that face on him, you can sort of that you can do the Necker reversal on the cube, and you can either see it as being the cube himself, or you can see it as being his mirror image. Okay, so that's uh, that's cool. Now, uh, I'll mention a few more topics. 
that I've often, I'd like to, over the years I've used flatland to think about physics a number of times. And sometimes they talk about uh, extra universes branching off from our universe. And there's one way to think about that, is to think about flatland being flat, and then a little bit of it bulging up and forming a bubble, and the bubble floats away. And so that would be, in our world, suddenly suppose that things around you started looking strange. Now, how would things look when you're in the bubble that's branching away? Well, I'll say more about this in a minute. Essentially, if A square were to look down, he'd see this sort of circle, and then inside this circle would be the whole rest of the world. So you'd suddenly be, things would start to look a little warped, and then you'd notice there had been this door, but it would have sort of shrunk to a sphere, and inside the sphere, you'd see the whole rest of the world, like a Christmas ornament. Like suddenly you're, and then, the other thing about being inside this little ball, A square is looking around, he's seeing himself. So suddenly I'm seeing myself on every side, except there's this little ball, and in that ball is the rest of the universe. And then that ball's shrinking, and then pop, I'm in a tiny little hyperspherical world where the only thing inside there is me. Probably you don't want to stay there, but then if you're fortunate, your hyperspherical world bumps into another hyperspherical world, pop, they join, and then they're combining. And so some, uh, some theories, some guys claim that physics has a continual series of big bags happening, that there's like new hyper, hyper universe, hyperspace universes, hypersphere universes popping into existence and going away. Does anybody have a question about this scenario? This is kind of an unreasonable scenario. I wrote it about it in my novel, uh, Realware. There's a, this guy sees this sort of ball, and he ends up inside it. Now, uh, another issue of flatland, this is a very problematic area. When flatland lifts a square up, maybe Tom told you about this story, a sphere comes and lifts a square up into the higher dimension. Did you tell you about that? The greatest story ever told. Yeah. And, uh, well, there's two big problems with this. One big problem is how do you lift a two-dimensional creature into 3D space? And then the other problem, and I'll get to in a minute, a square looks around and he sees stuff. So how does a two-dimensional creature see in 3D space? So, uh, so first of all, there's the issue, one kind of issue that's, one people, I mean, what is, in what sense is A squared two-dimensional? Now, some people say, oh, he's like a coin sliding on a tabletop. And if that were the case, then he might have skin on his top and his bottom, so you could pretty much safely lift him up. Now, in the 19th century, there was a viewpoint that there's this stuff called ether that fills up our space. And there's even a notion that the ether is sort of lying, on, in some sense, drawn below us, and we're sliding around on the ether. But the ether is this sort of fixed, absolute frame of reference. There's even a science fiction idea that if there's this sort of solid ether under us, maybe we have this little thorn 
this hyperthorn in our body, we can stick it into the ether and then maybe even manage to levitate by using our little thorns to pull ourselves upwards. Now, what you don't want to have happen is that the sphere grabs your skin, tugs it, and the skin comes out into 3D space, but all your innards stay, stay below. So you kind of need to, to give A-square an extra skin on top and bottom of his body. Um, another way to look at it would say, well, maybe there's a certain thickness to Flatland. Does our, if there's a fourth dimension, does our universe have a hyperthickness? And the physicists have gone back and forth on this. And if you say it has a hyperthickness, then maybe when you lift the person out, you go ahead and cut out, cut him out like a brownie, lift him up. There's been uh, the physicists. They really, it's like fashion or, or music. They they change their their theories so often now. In the there's a little while around. 1990 or 2000, when it seemed like they just were going to use one story. But now it's, it's so variable. Uh, one story that they tell nowadays is maybe our space has a certain, does have a four-dimensional thickness. And uh, there's this problem in physics. If they look at the sort of relative strength, there's these four forces, the strong force, the weak force, the electrostatic force, and the, uh, or electric force and then the force of gravity. Now on this scale, it turns out the force of gravity is, is much, much weaker than the others. It's, uh, I mean, to us, gravity seems strong because, you know, it's what, you know, you jump up and down, you fall off something, gravity's socking it to you. But you're, you know, you're a fairly massive object. The uh, a force of elect, uh, elect, electric, electric attraction is, is much stronger because that's the stuff that's holding your body together. I mean, gravity is one thing, but you can lift something up. But, you know, you pull on your finger, it doesn't come off. And you say, well, you know, it's matter. But what holds matter together? It's a bunch of, you know, electric forces, you know, uh, pluses and minuses attracting each other. So then they say, okay, well, here's, here we've got an explanation of why gravity is so weak. And the idea is that our space it has, is, has this hyper-thickness and the forces of electricity are combined, are confined within this hyperthickness. But gravity, for whatever reason, radiates outward. It's a force that goes through. It goes out into hyperspace. So a lot of the, quote, strength of gravity is being sort of frittered away, going out into hyperspace. So that's a, kind of an interesting theory. It would be fun if they could find that our space really had a, a fourth dimensional thickness. One thing, though, Another way that physicists sometimes bring in higher dimensions is they talk about string theory. And then they say our space has, I think it's 24 dimensions. 20, but they're sort of, in a way, they're sort of like, it's like there's some rich kid who has a million dollars and then he spends it on bubble gum, you know? It's like here they have a chance to have 27 higher dimensions. You say, what are you going to do with it? They say, oh, we're going to shrink them all down to the the size of the, the Planck length. You know, they're all going to be, uh, you know, a quadrillionth. We're, we have fourth dimension, but it's only a quadrillionth thick. And sort of like they're, they're frittering it away. They're turning it into vermin dimensions. Like, we want a nice, spacious fourth dimension where we can jump around in. Now, I'm going to talk about another thing that the fourth dimension is used for. 
in physics. Now, of course, the fourth dimension is also used for time, and maybe I'll talk about that later. But for now, uh, I want to talk about this idea of parallel worlds and there being bridges between the worlds. Now, we want to sort of think of there being the space sort of bending up. Uh, the space goes along, and then it shoots up into this sort of wormhole. So A squared could slide along this. Now, we don't want to have a hole in space. If you have an actual hole, it's like you look in your closet, you say there's nothing in there. I have nothing to wear. But you don't look in your closet and there's like philosophical, essential, cosmic, absolute nothing, you know? Like if you stick your hand in there, your hand disappears. Your hand no longer exists. You know, it's been disintegrated forever. So if there is nothing, we'd like to at least make it so you can't get into the closet. Now, one way you might not be able to get into the closet is every time you take a step towards it, you get half as tall. So this would be this sort of shrinking field, so you can't get into it. And that would be sort of as if the closet lay at the end of a long tunnel. Now, a slightly related notion is we want to think of there being two parallel worlds. There's flat land and there's glob land. And so these are like two parallel sheets. And that's a sort of a real favorite thing. I mean, you hardly ever, you very often see a science fiction movie or a TV show where you have people come from an alternate world, a parallel world. And in a way, science fiction is, is fairy tales. It's, it's, these are stories we like to tell ourselves because they have this appeal to us. They sort of touch on archetypes. And we like the idea of there being a different version of the world. It's like the world we think of. We like time travel because we like the idea of our memories. You know, we dream of going back to our past. We like flying because it's a sense of power. We like telepathy because it's the idea that somebody might actually understand what you're talking about. So it's there's not such a difference between fairy tales and science fiction, or even physics. But the thing is, physics sometimes works, and it gives us stuff like the fluorescent light bulb. And, uh, anyway, so now I'm going to talk about parallel worlds. Now, one of the things you want, if the parallel world's going to be any good, you want to be able to get from one to the other. Now, one way, of course, is that you could flip out into the fourth dimension, float over, and plaster yourself down. But it's a more kind of something more typical, more visual, is that we'd like to have a road that goes from our, our world to their world. So there's flat land, there's glob land. So we have two sheets. Now the, the crudest way to do this would just be to sort of cut out a rectangle in flat land or leaving one end still attached to flat land, then sort of bend that down, and then make another flap from glob land, bend that up, and then scotch tape the two, the two uh, flaps together, so then you could slide up, you know, like a sliding board that goes from one to the other. Now, there's a sort of, there's definitely going to be some warning labels on this thing, because, you know, the edge of this road, again, if you go off there, what's out there? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> so you don't want to go there. You don't want to slide off the edge. There's no space to hold you together. Uh, so we want to find a better way to have a road from flatland to globland. So there's not going to be the road where, you know, you need some kind of super guardrail. So the idea is, this is something that's called 
an Einstein-Rosen bridge. And uh, again, I wish I had a little better uh, slides here, but to some extent, you can get the basic idea. The idea of Einstein-Rosen bridge. This is Albert Einstein and another man called Rosen. I don't know too much about Rosen, but uh, Rosen was, a, I mean, he did some really good things with Einstein. He did the idea of Einstein-Podolsky-Rosen synchronicity and the Einstein-Rosen bridge. And I think they also patented some kind of radio tube or something, I seem to recall. Anyway, the Einstein-Rosen bridge is the idea is we take the two parallel sheets and uh, instead of doing something so crude as cutting out a, a flap and bending it down, is instead we force, we make a bulge in space. So we've got this sort of, let's call it the higher world where the glob people live, and we bulge their space down. We sort of take this two-dimensional world and bulge it down. We take our world, flatland, and we bulge it up. And then you connect those two, you let those two bulging things merge with each other, like soap bubbles. And so then you've got uh, a sort of, I'm not, I can't think of a good word for what this thing is. It's, it's, I think it was an Einstein-Rosen bridge, but you've got the two worlds, you've got this sort of wormhole or neck. Sometimes you'll see these drawn. Yes? The game Galaxy Quest? The game Galaxy Quest. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good one. Uh, Star Trek. But in the movie, there is a black hole that's shaped exactly like that. Yeah. Lines that are going, space is bending down, and there's these circles around it. Often they don't show you the inside of the black hole. But what we want to think of here is, is you're not actually annihilated, it's not dark and confusing inside the black hole. We've got just this simple curve that goes from the one world to the other. So it wouldn't have to be. Usually in a movie, when things get black and the, the screen shakes, that's when the writers don't actually know. <laughs> they don't have a good image. Yeah? Uh, so when uh, like one of them travels from one world to the other, are they reversed? Okay, that's a very good question. Because you start out, if we think of these sheets as having thickness, you start out on the top of Flatland, and you slide up this sort of throat that's connecting the two worlds, this tube, and then the throat opens back out and turns the other world. So then, in some sense, you're on the bottom of that flatland world. So what we want to do is we'll say, all right, let's assume there is no actual 3D thickness. This is just a true two-dimensional world. We have our three-dimensional world, and there's this sort of throat that goes out to the other world. Now, are you a mirror image when you get there? Well, in a way you are, because looked at from the outside, that A square is going to look, he's been turned over in a sense, he's going to look like his mirror image. But that's not going to really matter to him very much because anybody that slides through will be transformed in the same way. So, and also we'll assume that this doesn't actually have any thickness, these worlds. You're like ink on a paper that soaks through. So that's not going to be a real issue. Now, uh, yes. I love the 
Yes. They don't really explain whether it's an Einstein frozen bridge or this other kind of a just yeah. beam me up or something. Right. That's, this is actually a portal. And so what I want to do here is talk a little bit about how the portal would look and how it should look. So, you know, this, this, in effect, the Einstein-Rosen bridge is a portal because you slide in there, you, you smoothly move through it, and then you're up in another world where the globbers are. Now, uh, what we want to do to see how this would look to us, we want to think kind of closely about what A square is going to see. And uh, to that end, let's suppose that we have, suppose that we've got this throat, this Einstein-Rosen bridge throat, that smoothly goes from one plane to the other. Suppose you wrap something around the middle of that throat as sort of a barrier, okay? Maybe a globber wraps himself around it. He doesn't want us to come up there. He doesn't want the flatlanders to come up there. And then uh, let's get an image of what a square is going to be seeing. Well, what he's going to see, essentially we flatten it down because his image of what he's seeing is two-dimensional. Your image of what you're seeing when you're going through the portal is a three-dimensional experience. So the experience that he's going to see, he's going to see the portal will be a circle. Okay? There's this circular area. He can go around the edges of it. And if he goes in there, something weird happens. So for us, it's going to be the portal is going to be a sphere. That's the one thing they get wrong right away, almost always, in movies about portals uh, to alternate universes. The portal will not be a door, it will not be a disk, it will be a sphere. You can walk around the portal. Now, the best way to think about what the portal is like, it's like a Christmas tree ornament, those shiny balls that are on a Christmas tree. Now, the difference is, when you look inside this Christmas tree ball, you don't see the room that you're in, you see another room. Okay? The other world is what you're seeing inside there. Now, if somebody were to wrap themselves around it, then the, the sphere would be shrouded. There'd be you know, some creature covering it. Suppose there's nothing blocking the portal. You look into that, you look into that, you see a ball. So here's this person outside the portal. He's looking, he's seeing a, a circle in Flatland. For us, we're seeing a ball. Inside that little ball, we see other creatures. Now, when you go through there, and you get inside that ball, when you look back, you're going to see a ball with your homeland in it. Now, another thing about the portal, uh, probably it should be about as big as your body for you to comfortably move into it. Okay? So there's going to be a sphere, this sort of area of space that's a sphere. You walk into it, and uh, as you move into it, the region in there seems to expand, it looks bigger and bigger, and then you look behind you, and once you're more than halfway through, it will have sort of flipped the region. You'll see a sphere behind you, and you'll look at it, and that'll be the world that you started from. So that's the portal. That's how the, the hyperspace portal is going to look. And as I say, I wrote about that a lot in, uh, in my novel, Realware. There's a series of novels I wrote, Software. This came out in 1982. And at that time, people didn't know the word software. It was like a, an unusual word. And then uh, I'd read about it in Scientific American. 
And then wetware, which was a word I thought I made up, but actually I got it from Bruce Sterling. He's another science fiction writer, and he got it from somebody else. It's a way of talking about DNA. You know, if we say your body grows according to a program, what's the program? What's the code? Well, it's the DNA, the genetic code. But it's wet because it's in a cell, you know, and it's, there's water all around it. So then there's wetware. Then freeware, that was the third of the novels. And that's something you get over the web that then maybe you didn't want it after all. Maybe it was a virus. And so that freeware is about aliens. The way to travel through space is not to put meat in a can and then propel the can by burning gasoline. That's, that's not a reasonable way to travel. It's almost like thinking you could get in a magic boat or have a horse and a carriage take you somewhere. You want to turn yourself into information and then beam that information out as a high-energy gamma ray burst. And then, hopefully, you just wait. Eventually, the gamma ray burst somewhere, you're hoping, is going to hit something that will then decrypt it and turn it back into a piece of meat. And so that's freeware. There's some aliens that are visiting Earth. They're freeware. But we're not that glad they got here. And then realware is where uh, direct matter control, where you learn how to just basically... It's like 3D printing, but it's better. You take the design of the object, and then you push a button, and then the object's there. Anyway, in realware, there's a lot of stuff about these uh, Einstein Rosen bridges. Okay. So that's a lot of information I've dumped on you. What about Space Time and Donuts? That was my very first novel, when I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> it was... Uh, and the idea in there was an idea. There's this idea that people sometimes have. Sometimes, actually, in movies, they make fun of this idea. When, when they're like doing a book about the 60s and some people are getting high, then they'll, they'll talk about this idea. It's like, what if atoms were tiny planets? <laughs> you know? So then I thought, well, let's do that idea. So in Space Time Donuts, they shrink. And then they get down, and they go inside the atoms, and then they find little galaxies, and inside the galaxies they find planets. And then one of them, the kicker is, it's a sort of odd topology, the planet they find in there is Earth itself that they left from. So it's not just some other planet, it's the, their own world they started from. And there's a way to make it work. Uh, if you use the fourth dimension, uh, you basically... You draw a donut, and that's why the book's called Space Time Donuts. Uh, it's kind of, Tom's probably better at drawing toruses than I am. It's sort of hard to draw a torus. Okay. And the idea is, we say, well, what if we start at a certain size, and then the donut kind of goes down, and then if the circle starts shrinking, you know, it's getting smaller, it's getting smaller, it goes down through the throat. But the weird thing is, if you continue going through the donut, then the shrinking turns into growth. So you could have, if you shrink far enough, then you might actually end up going through the, the throat and end up being big. And then you could shrink back to where you started. So that was Space Time Donuts. That book was serialized in a SF magazine. The first two parts came out, and then uh, they didn't put the third part out. But then I, I eventually sold it to a publisher. But that book is still available from a 
very small press called E-Reads. So you want to take a break for 10 minutes? If you have a question now, we can answer it too. Yes. And if you drew a woman such as a line with a triangle as an eye, yes. would it be more of a pencil shape where it's like kind of like this is the eye right here uh -huh. to be more like... Um, well, you're making the point that it doesn't really make sense to have a body that's a segment. You ought to have some stuff inside it. So, yeah, you could, you could make that point. Uh, there's the, the book that Tom mentioned... Uh, called Planiverse by Key Dudney. He actually went to, took some pains to try to give the Flatlanders more realistic sorts of bodies. Uh, in other words, it's, he, he actually has them walking around on a world. And he says, well, what if we actually made these people look like actual animals that could work? And so... Planarist, the creatures look something like this. They'll have an eye bulge. Then they'll have a mouth here and a stomach sac. And then uh, might have a, a hand. And then legs. Something like that. And then you might even have a bone in there. And the bones... Uh, they can sort of hook up with ball and socket arrangements. So you'd have a, a little socket here, and then so on. And then you get past that issue I was talking about digestion. They eat the food here, and then they go off somewhere and spit it out after they've digested it enough. So this would be a sort of more realistic notion of how you would make a two-dimensional creature. And you could give them some sort of brain here and then have some... You have to be a little careful with the... You can't ever have anything cross anything else. So if you, <laughs> you have to be a little careful about the nerves. So maybe you have lots of synapses, so they don't have to actually. So you can have things pass through things of that nature. But that's that's one of the reasons. That's an interesting book, Planiverse. I haven't heard from Key in a long time. Uh, he stopped doing quarter dimensions. Yeah, he sort of went off the deep end. Ecology. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, you said something about scuba That's a nice thing to do. There's even uh, there's a man called Pidi Uspensky. He was a, a Russian thinker. 
he wrote quite a few books. And he was a follower of this, uh, this man called G.I. Gurdjieff, who was a, sort of a, a guru. But Uspensky also wrote some book, wrote a little bit about the fourth dimension. And he made the point, he said the consciousness of a snail is one-dimensional. Because all the snail, the way Uspensky looked at it, he just knows the path he's crawling along. Uh, if you know, it, it's not really, it's not necessarily a straight line, but it's, it's sort of this one-dimensional series of paths, which uh, that's kind of an interesting thought. Well, a mole or any but any creature that goes through tunnels is yeah, or, but then they can split the tunnel. But they are, yeah. It's maybe it's not really right to say they're one-dimensional. Yeah. Well, the idea of freedom. Of And if you're zero-dimensional, that means you don't move at all. You're just a point, and you think about nothing but yourself. It's like Donald Trump. Yeah. Well, that's one of the parts that uh, that school children like the best when we show that film. Point Yeah. Not only get it, but they walk out saying me, 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 me. Yeah. 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 And Lion Land also, there's an issue because they could ever pass each other. Yeah. And they do uh, communicate by singing. Yeah. Which can pass through. Yeah. And they mate by singing in harmony. Yeah, I think that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's direct contact with Lion Land is impossible. Yeah. So, what other. Uh, can you talk about geometry and your other, any other geometric things in your other novels? Well, there was one I should mention. There's a, I wrote a story called Message Found in a Copy of Flatland. And it's about a professor who's on sabbatical from Gray University. And he's, uh, he's in England and he's looking for the, he wants to find, he's doing research on Flatland. And uh, he meets a woman who says, uh, <laughs> well, it turns out Flatland is a real place. It actually exists. And it's in the basement of uh, this building that my mother and I run a, uh, it's like a, a snack bar. But Flatland is in the basement here. And, uh, and he goes down and there's, he sees this luminous sheet like a, a bubble kind of iridescent, and the Flatlanders are moving around in there. <laughs> now, it's not clear how far Flatland extends. It Somehow it seems as if the space down in the basement is warped. It seems to go on forever. Okay, so uh, the guy meets this woman. He says, I'm Professor Robert Ackley at Gray University. And what do you profess? She sets a plate of meatballs down with an encouraging click. Mathematics, I study the fourth dimension, just as Edwin Abbott Abbott did. Have you really read Flatland? Dealing with the fearful read it, I the uh, the Sikh interrupted me. So it's a, an Indian diner and it's the uh, Dila works there and then there's a, a man there, mostly just referred to as the Sikh. The customer, 
interrupted then calling for butter on his rice. I sampled one of the meatballs. It was hot and dry as desert sand. Whispered unexpectedly, was she hoping for a date with me? Well, why not? This is the longest conversation I had with anyone since coming to London. I'm well off, I said, hoping to make myself attractive. I have a good position and I am unmarried. Would you like to have dinner with me? This proposal seemed to surprise Dula. She covered her mouth with one hand and burst into high laughter. Admittedly, I am no ladies' man. Someday, she lowered her voice and leaned closer. Downstairs, downstairs, there's something you should see. I'm hoping that you might pay to see it. It seemed very hot and close in this little restaurant. The inclination of the Sikh's turban indicated that he was listening to our conversation. I had made a fool of myself trying to date this young woman. It was time to go. Stiffly, I paid the bill and left. Only when I stepped out on the street and looked at my change did I realize that Dila had given me a note. Robert? Flatland is in the basement of our shop. Come back at closing time, and I will show it to you. Please bring 100 pounds. My father is ill. Diva. I turned and started back into the shop. The dealer made a worried face and placed the finger on the Very well, I could wait. Closing time, I noticed. I spent the rest of the day with British Museum, there the gas, First time I was able to hold in my hands a copy of J.K.F. Zollner's 1878 book, Transcendental Physics. Here I read how a spirit from hyperspace would be able to enter a closed room by coming in, not through the walls or the ceiling, but through the side of the room by opening the fourth dimension. Four-dimensional spirits long sought but never found. Smiling a bit at Zollner's gullibility, I set his book down and reread Dila's note. Flatland is in the basement of our shop. What does she mean by that? She perhaps found Abbott's original manuscript in the ruined foundations of the old city. Or did she mean something more literal, something more incredible, something more bizarre than spirits from the fourth dimension? The whole time in the library, I had the feeling that someone was watching me. When I stepped back onto the street, I realized I was indeed being followed. It was the Sikh, his obstinate turban always half a block behind me, Finally, I lost him by going into a movie theater by the rear exit and dashing into the nearest pub. I passed a bland few hours there, drinking the warm beer and eating the stodgy food. Finally, it was 10 p.m. Dila was waiting for me in the darkened shop. She let me in and locked the door behind me. Did you bring the money? The empty shop felt very private. Dila's breath was spicy and close. What had I really come for? Flatland stated Dila is in the basement. Did you bring the money? I gave her a 50-pound note. She flattened it out and held it up to examine it by the streetlight. Suddenly there is a rapping on the door. The seat. Quick! Gila took me by the arm and rushed me behind the counter and down a narrow hallway. Down there, she said, indicating a door. I'll get rid of him. She trotted back out to the front of the shop. 
Breathless with fear and excitement, I opened the shabby door and stepped down onto the dark stairs. The door swung closed behind me, muffling the sound of Diva's voice. She was arguing with the seat, though without letting him in. I moved my head this way and that, trying to make out what lay in the basement. Diva's faint voice grew shriller. There was what looked like a ball of light floating at the foot of the stairs, an oddly patterned ball of light some three feet across. I went down a few more steps to have a closer look. The thing was sort of like a huge lens. Sort of like an Einstein Rosen bridge. Yeah. A lens looking onto. Just then came the sound of shattering glass. It smashed his way in. The clangor of the shop's burglar alarm drowned out Dila's wild screams. Footsteps pounded close by and the door at the head of the stairs flew open. Come back up, Professor Ackley called the seat. His voice was high and desperate. You are in great danger. But I couldn't tear myself away from the glowing sphere. It appeared to be an Einstein-Rosen bridge, a space tunnel leading into another universe. The other universe seemed to contain only one thing, an endless glowing plane filled with moving forms, flat land. The seat came clattering down the stairs. My legs made a decision. I leaped forward through the space tunnel and into another world. I landed on all fours. There was a sort of floor about a yard below the plain of Flatland. When I stood up, it was as if I were standing waist deep in an endless shiny lake. My fall through the Flatlander's face had smashed up one of their houses. Several of them were nosy at my waist, wondering what I was. To my surprise, I could feel their touch quite distinctly. They seemed to have a thickness of several millimeters. The mouth of the space tunnel was right overhead, a dark sphere framing the Sikh's excited face. He reached down as if to grab me. I quickly squatted down beneath the plane of flatland and crawled away across the firm, smooth floor. The busy, bright space shimmered overhead like an endless soap film, effectively shielding me from the Sikh. I could hear the sounds of more footsteps on the stairs. Dila? There were cries, a gunshot, and then silence. I pushed my head back up, being careful not to bump any flatlanders. The dark opening of the space tunnel was empty. I was safe, safe in flatland. I rose up to my full height and surveyed the region around me. I was standing in the middle of a street, that is to say, in the middle of a clear path lined with flatland houses on either side. The houses had the form of large squares and rectangles, three to five feet on the side. The flatlanders themselves were as Abbott has described them. Women are short lines with a bright eye at one end. The soldiers are very sharp isosceles triangles, and there are squares, pentagons, and other polygons as well. The adults are, on the average, 12 inches across. The buildings that lined my street bore signs in the form of strings of colored dots along their outer walls. To my right was the house of a childless hexagon and his wife. To my left was the home of an equilateral triangle, a proud father of three little squares. Triangle's door plane of flatland cut me at the waist and arms, giving me, giving me the appearance of a large blob flanked by two smaller blobs. A weird and uncanny spectacle, to be sure. This is what he's seeing.
had the triangle of Sakazaya. stomach there and his two hands and I gave some thought to this actually I think I got this idea from Dudney if the Flatlanders were going to put signs on their walls on our walls we put signs we put two dimensional patterns on the two dimensional wall they would put one dimensional patterns so they would put like little squares and, and triangles on their walls the signs. so there's the hexagon and see he's got his wife is locked away and there's a frightened square. There's a triangle. See, his grandchildren ran in. And here come the soldiers. This is going to be his downfall. <laughs> okay. So, uh, let me go up here. Okay. Maybe I'll turn the light out. I think it's boring if you can read it while I'm reading. <laughs> can you read the light out? Suck his eye out of his door to study me. I could feel his excited voice vibrating the face touching my waist. Flatland seemed to be made of a sort of jelly, perhaps one sixteenth, perhaps a full one sixteenth of an inch thick. Suddenly I heard Dila calling to me. I looked back at the dark mouth of the tunnel, floating about eight feet above the mysterious ground on which I stood. I walked towards it, staying in the middle of the Flatlander street. The little line segment door slammed as I walked past, and I could look down at the Flatlanders towering in their homes. I stopped under the tunnel's mouth and looked up at Dila. She was holding a coiled-up rope ladder. You want to come out now, Robert? There was something cold and unpleasant about her voice. What happened to the seat? He will not bother us again. How much money do you have with you? I recall that so far it only paid to try to Don't worry, I'll give you the rest of the money. But how could she even think of money with a wander like this? I felt a sharp pain in the back of my back, and then another. I whirled around to see a platoon of two dozen flatland soldiers bearing down on me. Two of them had stuck into my back like knives. I wrenched them out, lifting them free of their space and threw them into the next block. I was bleeding. Blade thick and tough skinned, these soldiers were a real threat. One by one I picked them up by their blunt ends and set them down inside the nearest building. I kept them locked in by propping my side against the door. If you give me all your money, Robert Sedila, then I will lower this rope ladder. It was then that I finally grasped the desperation of my situation. Barring Dila's help, there is no possible way for me to get up to the mouth of the tunnel, and Dila would not help unless I handed all over my cash some 300 pounds. The Sikh, whom I had mistakenly thought of as an enemy, had been trying to save me from Dila's trap. Come on, she said, I don't have all night. There were some more soldiers coming down the street after me. I reached back to feel my wounds. My hand came away wet with blood. It was interesting to see Flatland, but it was clearly time to leave. Very well, you nasty little thief. Here's all the money I have. 300 pounds. The police, I assure you, will hear of this. I drew the bills out and held them up to the tunnel mouth. Dila reached through, snatched the money, and then disappeared. The new troop of soldiers was almost upon me. 
Hurry, I shouted. Hurry up with the ladder. I need medical attention. Moving quickly, I scooped up the soldiers as they came. One got past my hand and stabbed me in the stomach. I grew angry and dealt with the remaining soldiers by poking out their hearts. When I was free to look up the tunnel mouth again, I saw a sight that chilled the blood. It was the Sikh, eyes glazed in death, his arms dangling down towards me. I realized the dealer had shot him. I grabbed one of his hands and pulled, hoping to lift myself up into the tunnel. But the corpse slid down, crashed through flatland, and thudded onto the floor at my feet. Dila, I screamed, for the love of God. Her face appeared again, but she was no longer holding the rope ladder. In its stead, she held a pistol. Of course it would not do to set me free. I would make difficulties. In my body already safe in this dimensional oubliette, it would be nonsense to set me free. Dila aimed her gun. As before, I ducked below Flatland's opalescent surface and crawled for dear life. Dila didn't even bother shooting. Goodbye, Robert, I heard her calling. Stay away from the tunnel or else. This was followed by her laughter, her footsteps, the slamming of the cellar door, and then silence. That was two days ago. My wounds have healed. The seek has grown stiff. I made several repellent efforts to use his corpse as a ladder or a grappling hook, but to no avail. The tunnel mouth is too high, and I am constantly distracted by the attacks of the isosceles triangles. But my situation is not entirely desperate. The flatlanders are, I have learned, edible. <laughs> With a taste something like very moist smoked salmon. It takes quite a few of them to make a meal, but they are plentiful, and they are easy to catch. No matter how tightly they lock their doors, they never know when the five globs of our fingers will appear, like Zollner's spirits, to snatch them away. I fill the margins of my beloved old copy of Flatland now. It is time to move on. Somewhere there may be another tunnel. Before leaving, I will throw this message up through the tunnel mouth. It will lie beneath the basement stairs, and someday someone will find it. Farewell, reader, and do not pity me. I was but a poor laborer in the vineyard of knowledge, and now I have become the Lord of Flatland.